All right, we're already recording. I know. Is it cool to play a saxophone in the background while we're recording? No. <laughs> I want to channel my inner Bill Clinton if we're having this conversation. That, I'm okay, uncomfortable actually, with that. That sounds actually pretty uncomfortable. I'm not actually. I'm not okay that I said that. Delete that. <laughs> Edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> Stop the podcast. I want to get off. Um, so that's something Bill Clinton would say. Um, yeah. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I don't want to hear anything else that Bill Clinton would say. Uh, oh, but I, I, I've been working on my Arkansas accent. Ha- you did the emphasis you? on the eyes. That's the thing. So it's like. Well, I think that uh, we should be going to, uh, I don't know. It's like, uh, it's like you know, uh, I don't know. <laughs> and I like that we've lost uh, our entire southern listening base of zero people. So, Well, I, I'll I'll tell this to my southern <laughs> brethren. Okay. Having, See, no, that's Oklahoma. You're doing Oklahoma right now. Having grown up in Louisiana. That ain't, that ain't Louisiana. That ain't Louisiana, but I never picked up the accent in Louisiana, so I. Uh, <laughs> you you are doing really good Oklahoma though, which is interesting. I'm just to... I'm just a, yeah, for whatever reason I just identify with the Oklahoma accent, and uh, now now there's some tinges of Georgia coming in there. There is but, a little bit of yeah, a little yeah, Georgia peach feel. You know, going just on. sort of pan southern. <laughs> not to be confused with a panhandle, we don't tolerate that. <laughs> of course not, dear God. No, yeah. I just want to work uh, on my yeah. West Virginia accent. There's a way of having a West that, Virginia accent that's just it's just a delightful accent, you know. There's something to it, like yeah. It makes it makes I, me miss uh, 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 one of my buds back in law school who had a very nice uh, West Virginia accent. And if he ever hears this, he's gonna be like, "Please stop making fun of me." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I. It's kind of interesting that looking back. I, when I when I lived in Louisiana, um, that uh, I I despised the accent. Um, I mean, everybody called me a Yankee, even though like I'd moved there from Utah, and uh, yeah, I hated the accent. I really rebelled against it, and I tried not to get it. But you know, years later, I think part of reclaiming my experience there. In a yeah. way that's more positive, I've I've sort of been okay with adopting seven, so, sort of the southernisms that I really despised at the time. Yeah, I mean the thing is like no matter where you live, you end up picking up some of the uh, local nomenclature, and I mean that's, that's the thing you pick up the way you speak. Yeah. It. Like it's not yeah, just sure. like the actual like you know turns of phrase and stuff like that, but you just pick up you pick up the accent, and you pick up the lilt of you know how folks talk. Um, right. And it's either, um, like you know, we were talking like a little bit ago, like the you know meme speak kind of stuff, like that does creep into you know, oh, daily yeah. conversation. I oh, mean, it like, definitely I, you know, does. And it's a lot of you know, like like I started saying "yeet" ironically, and now I just <laughs> yeet it all over the conversation all the time because I'm in love with it. Like it's God damn it. no, it's it's it, it's, it's contagious. I mean, it's a good word. Is it though? Is it? It is, um, yeah, yeah, no, it yeah, is. Yeah, it's a good uh, word, and it, it, yeah, for for me with the Louisiana thing, it's like crawfish or crawfish. They're not any of the other fucking things people call them. So, you know, that just was always the case. That always stuck with me. Yeah, and I, I guess also, uh, 
I I do talk funny now because of having like read a lot of leftist philosophy and ideology for yeah. not a, you know and so now I'll I'll say things that are just uh on honestly it's it's kind of crypto um because because anyone <laughs> because anybody else who like knows the words will will be you know it's just jargon at that point i mean um, it's 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 political well, jargon I, which i mean okay what's the difference between political jargon and crypto that's a i think it depends question. on your purpose because i mean are you purposely hiding uh your exact beliefs no um i try to just, well i do uh so i use it i use it as jargon because there is these uh, subtleties in language that make it really important to be like, no, I don't mean blank, I mean blank. And they sound almost the exact same, but there's this little bit of difference right. in there. And jargon's useful for that. And I yeah. feel like if you're trying to do it more in a, like, well, what I mean is blank, but I'm actually saying blank, then that's, you know, it, it makes it harder to have realistic conversations about, well, about yeah. leftist ideology, politics generally, and... I guess that can be a good way to introduce it when you're talking to someone who isn't really involved in leftist politics, because in in like in leftist politics, we have a lot of differentiation between words that can sometimes sound really similar to uh, to ideas that get described in general liberal discourse. And so when we say it, that can confuse a lot of people. Well, I mean, the, a lot of that, I think, is uh, it ends up being a barrier. It makes it a little hard for folks to get into, like, you know, the movement yeah. because they oh, have yeah. – I mean, we've had this conversation with terms about, like, uh, democratic confederalism where it's like, yes. like <laughs> my God, what does that mean? And it's like, yeah. well – and it's like you can explain the idea behind it. We just say, okay, well, anarchism. Like, that also, it's – yeah. Is, is it I, jargon honestly... or is it – Honestly, Crypto. I'd rather explain I'd rather explain anarchism than democratic confederalism. <laughs> yeah, it's a little easier. <laughs> yeah, be, because you know people have this. People think it's a, a synonym for chaos, right? Yeah. Um, and you can fight that by saying it's not. Um, where, yeah. Whereas with democratic confederalism, you got to sort of break things down into parts <laughs> and explain the meanings of words. Whereas with anarchism, you can just present the uh, the real definition, kind yeah. of. Um, you know, not that there's a fully clear definition of what anarchism is, but uh, you can come up with some relatively coherent, you know, things that work for most people who call themselves anarchists. And you can kind of explain away a lot of the, I guess, propaganda that's come up around the term anarchism throughout the last century. Um, yeah. But yeah. It's, it's harder to explain away the confusion between democratic confederalism and being like, well, I don't mean the confederacy. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, but maybe a little more similar to the... Uh, uh, the Articles of Confederation. No, you no, just can't. No, you can't. It, it, it gets confusing. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, but I think a lot of the, the the same idea, and I know today we're going to be talking about um, kind of personal journeys and uh, how a lot of us kind of started forming political ideologies that may have been very wrong on the internet. And we're talking about, you know, jargon and, you know, bringing up meme speak earlier. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that 
uh, internet culture that fosters those same uh, verbal tics, I think, is uh, either jargon or crypto. And, I mean, like, crypto fascism is a thing. There's a yes. reason there's... Um, I, I think of, like, you know, recent... Uh, patterns i've seen like alt-right folks online where they have uh do you know the clown world thing yeah where it's yeah. a bunch of like alt-right dudes were kind of like oh we live in this crazy clown world because because trans people exist and so therefore they believe we live in upside down world and they just started responding with all this kind of like clown speak and clown emojis right. and being like oh look we're goofy and they have terms they make up for it like mm -hmm. um i'm just saying like honk all the fucking time yeah, and it's just stuff like that. Um, There's also a, a subreddit called like Friend World, which was after like this clown world thing kind of got shut down right before. I don't know what the actual timeline was exactly, but it was yeah, just them. I saw that them, too. them kind of just talking like little kids and being like, "Oh, we just want friends," and it's I like, no, this, so this is a way of kind of disguising <laughs> the actual. Oh, we got it. Let's go. We got to talk about yeah. it though. But it's a way of disguising yeah. the ideology, and it's a way of being like. I mean, one of the big things that you'd see pop up a lot is, you know, like the Holocaust denier folks who are like, oh, no, I lost six million, six billion friends. Where are my friends? And it's like, OK, like you, you, you if you look at it from any outside area, you're like, OK, yeah, clearly you're just actually being, you know, anti-Semitic. But they right. can always play it off as like, well, no, we're just being goofy and cute. We just want friends online and we want to be able to make these jokes. And yeah, they're a little edgy, but that's not so bad. And. <laughs> I feel like that's like what makes a lot of it. Well, that's what that makes a lot of it like like so like yeah. seductive for kids, like kids. Um, and so I don't yeah. say, you know, it's kind of like a this is the, the the long road episodes. We're talking about kind of our paths to where we got, um, you know, politically, and I think specifically yeah. talking about you know how a lot of us did on some level when we're growing up in our teens, like get seduced by this kind of nascent alt right uh ideology online like fa fascism yeah. fa we got seduced by fascism yeah, fa online. fascist ideology or and... not necessarily seduced um i think some people some people on the left were seduced at one point and then left and then there were some of us who were we could have been seduced by it like we like like in in my case like i went on to some of those uh fascist forums uh in like the mid late thousands um and yeah. if the right person had been able to come along with the right propaganda uh they might they might have been able to make a fucking fascist out of me at least for a time uh i i think though that there were some fundamental issues there that that ultimately would have meant that uh that i was guaranteed to to not fall in with that um but uh, I can see it personally being something that I, I don't think I ever would have gone, you know, like full fash or anything. But right. being on the the sidelines to it, being one of those like, well, I don't get what the big deal is. Why can't I, you know, make these jokes? Why can't I say these yeah. words? I think that was a lot more of it for me. And for it's you know, I um. One of the first like online games I got really into was Counter Strike, and if you've played Counter Strike, <laughs> you know how bad it gets. You know, like yeah. 
there are people who have their usernames just like Obama's the N-word, and that's just their username. And it's like, yep, and they're killing you, and so you're yelling that back at them. And, you know, folks are joking about this stuff, they're swearing at each other, they're calling each other yeah. racial slurs, and that's, like, been a thing on online gaming the entire time I've ever interacted with online gaming. And right. people act like it's like, oh, it's a new horrible thing, these kids are, you know, being all openly bigoted and it's like no that's been a thing and no. for some reason it was treated by a lot of folks online as like well, this is okay you can do this and right, it's I, acceptable yeah and part of it is that it kind of comes out of this um trash talking uh sporting mentality that comes along with yeah. online gaming it's like you you want to yeah. you want to piss off your opponent you want to make them angry you want to you know yeah. say you know hey we i fucked your mom like you know you want to do offensive shit like yeah. that but on some level, it's like, well, what's the most offensive thing I can say? How edgy can I be? How far can I push this? And when everybody's doing that, you get into sort of a, a banality of bigotry situation where it's like, yeah, it's of course it's okay to say that because everybody's saying it. So why would it be bad? Right. And and when it's a bunch of people who are anonymous and aren't like on the ground accountable, yeah. uh, like in a lot of circumstances, even in the sporting world, if you said the N-word to somebody, you get your ass beat. Um, but when you're online, that doesn't fucking happen. There's no, you know, there, there are no consequences for uh, using language that otherwise would be fighting words. Yeah. I not remember who it was. It was Manny Pacquiao versus... Um... Oh god, who's the big guy? He's, you know, he, you know, he's against some uh, MAGA guy, I think, and he like just like I don't know. It was, it was one of the things where it's kind of like there. It, someone said some offensive shit. That's all I remember. And yeah. it was like someone said something really offensive, yeah. and it was just like the whole discussion around the actual fight became incredibly politicized almost immediately. Of like, well, which side's going to win? And it's another recent one where there is um uh what was his name? There's another another boxing match where it was um. Uh, the guy was like a Bernie Sanders guy, and the other guy is like a big MAGA guy, and yeah. um, like kicked his ass, and like it kicked his ass, and like next thing he says, like yeah, like you know, vote Bernie Sanders, which is like yeah, it's, it's a positive <laughs> thing to see, but it's like, but if you, it's 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 different when it really is like that level of you know, it's it's physical, it's sports, it's you right. talk trash, you get hit. And that's why I'm bringing yeah. up boxing because boxing, I think, is the best example of that. Like, yeah, you talk trash, you get hit. Online's yeah, it, not the same. Online is like you talk trash thing. and worst case scenario, someone talks trash back to you. That's the yeah. worst case scenario. Yeah. Or you get banned from the game. Yeah. Like, which is not really a huge punishment a lot of the time. Um, it, it's, uh, and I think it's also, what we do know is that video games like online gaming are also a recruiting grounds for, um for fascists like absolutely uh, i, I I've, I've, played, I've seen that yeah. happening i've seen folks yeah. being like hey you should check out this website and linking to like exactly not really like stormfront but like other you know fairly fashy sites and but also yeah. like like Either hey websites well, yeah they yeah, don't yeah. have they don't have the fucking swastika on there yet but you're just going to go to the that website and then they're going to give you links to the other ones and eventually you're you're fucking nazi um I mean, I've seen I've seen it myself where I I've been playing with uh with friends and we're just like chatting with other people who are on the game and having a good time, and suddenly uh you know some randos like you know well yeah you know 
uh, Hitler was right to to gas the Jews. And I and I'm like, what the what? Yeah. Where did that come from? Jesus Christ! Well, and, I, and I like a lot of it, some it, kid who who like doesn't have like that political awareness that my friends and I do. Um, they might just think it's that that edginess, and you know that that other rando then has an opportunity to start, uh, you know, to start propagandizing and start pulling somebody into that new political fold. Well, and that gets back to the conversation we we're having at the beginning of this of like, where does jargon become crypto? And a lot of it, I think, is that where it's people actually having yeah. this conversation online, where it's like, because especially if not like on, you know, video games, where people are actually able to talk via mic back and forth to each other. But when it actually right. is, you know, like online forums, especially like the older days when it was, you know, like uh, Totsi and something awful and stuff like that, where these like purely text forums, like not even images, yeah. where it's like, okay, at what point are you talking to some, you know, 30 something who's has a, you know, I don't know, a, a, a Second Reich spiked helmet sitting behind him, or what level are you talking to some 12-year-old thinks it's funny to say the N-word on the internet? And you yeah. don't really know. You don't know who you're talking no, to. You don't know. And it gives it kind of this sanitization where it's it's you, it's kind of right. okay to say these things because, hey, maybe you're um, just some like edgy kid. And I think it's, it's not just jargon. Uh, it, it is something rather... And I know that these fascist movements are growing up all over the world, but I think in America there is a very particular um, cultural background that makes it easy to fall into. Um, I know that growing up in in the rural South and the rural Midwest, that uh, you know a lot of people when when you know a lot of a lot of guys, uh, and this is adults and kids, when they learn the sort of you know learn the the short form history that they get in school and then they're like out on boy scout camping trips or something uh you'll hear like praise of like the german military in world war ii and say well you know the nazis were bad but you know they were really good at fighting wars and so at least that's one thing that really sticks in my mind growing up yeah is hearing that in hearing these like old conservative guys uh, telling kids that you know, well, the Nazis were bad, but there were these things that well, they were effective at, and that really sort of that gets the foot in the door for being able to say, well, you know, the Nazis did the, this, you know, did this thing really well, and we can praise that uh, sort of thinking. Um, yeah, it, and, and, it, it opens the doorway yeah. to like, well, what else can it, I consider about them that might be good? Yeah, and I think, you yeah. know, like, I saw a lot of folks, I think especially like high school age, who were in, like, ROTC and stuff like that, who really yeah. liked wearing the uh, the German sweaters. Like, they came with their call, but, like, the, the military sweaters that has usually, like, the actual German flag on the arm. Oh, yeah, uh, like yeah. The padded shoulders, usually, like, olive mm -hmm. green. And right. there's a lot of guys I knew who, like, wore that stuff. And I don't think they were, like, Nazi or fashy or, like, proto-fash guys. But I think it was just kind of, like, it's kind of the aesthetic. Right. And um, I think I mean, a lot of... The, the Nazis were huge about aesthetic. So it, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, because I, I know that for me, the aesthetic was really appealing when I was a kid. Like living living in yeah. this American society where we don't value aesthetics, where everything is just... Everything just looks like fucking garbage everywhere. You know, strip malls everywhere and asphalt everywhere and, you know... Like, 
I mean, the Nazis would have loved that, but no, the Nazis. <laughs> no, objectively, the Nazis would have loved that. Um, I no, I think that I think that's true. But they but they also got uh, an Italian clothes designer to design their uniforms, you and they lost. did that. Yeah. Uh, they did that for for a specific reason. It was because they understood that aesthetics were a form of propaganda, and I think that's absolutely true for how it appeals to boys growing up. You know, many boys, especially in rural areas in America, growing up. I think so. I think also there is. Um, I, I mean, Nazis are fetishized evil. Like they really are. Like it yeah, is 100% like it's it's the the jack boots and the leather and it's it's right. fetishized evil. Yeah. Um, why else do all the you know why else do all the Star Wars evil people always look like fucking Nazis? Yeah. Like. Yeah. And um. But the thing is, going back to the idea of kind of this online recruiting ground, which yeah. I think we were all exposed to. Yeah. Th- that was removed from it. Like it was in the background. Like, you knew, you knew the Nazis right. really. You know what they were. Like. But the idea of just saying like, I never like saw folks like actively recruiting folks to be Nazis. It was just kind of like, oh, Nazis are interesting. Let's talk about them. But I saw yeah. folks online actively spreading, you know, uh, Holocaust information stuff, being like, well, you know, it's uh, really six million. Like you know, like that kind of like, right. Well, are, well, I'm just asking questions. That mm-hmm. whole thing. Yeah. And I feel like I saw that a lot more and yeah that paired with well it's okay to make these jokes online makes it very easy for that kind of discussion to slip out into the real world and i yes. remember one time where it was uh, a girlfriend of mine back in high school and it was like i'd hang out with friends and like you know uh had the traditional um you know uh American uh, 2000s multiracial group of friends, you know, uh, that's a complete lie. Uh, a bunch of it's a bunch of white kids hanging out, yeah, and and making racial jokes, and you know, and be, being not like racist, but being like, yeah, we're saying these things because they're edgy and funny, and we're all you know 16. And then my girlfriend at the time just kind of out of the blue going off in this tirade about how she thinks Mexicans are terrible and a drain on society. And, and my friend's Mexican mother is sitting there like very wow. white Hispanic, but like she's from Mexico. And it was yeah. just like, and kind of, it was like a, a weird shift for all of us at that point of like, wait, we've been making these jokes for a long time. And some people are actually believing this. And that was kind of a big turning point of like, holy shit, we're a bunch of white dudes sitting around playing like, you know, shooter video games and saying all this shit. Yeah. And then all of a sudden realizing like, wait, some of you are actually believing this shit. And it was scary having that realization. Yeah. And I think like that was the point when for me, all of a sudden started being like, wait a second, are we going down a really bad path? And I think Hmm. that's the realization that I had that, kind of turned me away from going down kind of a fashy path was seeing all of a sudden like wait some of y'all are taking this seriously yeah and it made me have to analyze not only with like you know stupid 16 year old teenage brain but having to analyze like well are we like uh you know 
weird fashy group of kids and again we're all like are we the baddies are we the baddies are we the baddies <laughs> yeah and it's like you know at the time it's like you know hanging out with buddies and we're, we're all sitting around you know like uh i think she's probably like no i said 16 i think it was more around 18 because at that point we all were like you know going out shooting and stuff in the desert like you know yeah taking rifles out and you know so all sitting out there wearing your like camo pants and you know white t-shirts and like going out to the desert with guns and making racial jokes and it's like oh fuck are we the baddies <laughs> yeah <laughs> and it was a really scary realization having like you know talk to my friends about that and being like and i can think of a couple folks who did not take that well who were like of course we're not the baddies we're just joking like calm the fuck down and i don't really talk to those folks much anymore because a couple of them went uh, pretty far right yeah what a surprise and a lot of the other folks are you know i mean technically card-carrying socialists because they all actually you know have their social security cards but uh <laughs> oh god <laughs> i will never not make that joke um but are you know i've never heard it but i but i feel like i've heard it <laughs> yeah but um but they are all pretty far left now and yeah um, that's the majority of that group when we all kind of came from the same area we all came from the same like internet yeah. space huh. and, i mean i, I want to actually talk about like i brought up totsi earlier and that was where my online um i, I, I almost so, want to call it fascist grooming started yeah so that... you're you're a little older than i am and i don't know what totsi is so you're gonna have to you're gonna have to explain it to me like i'm a zoomer okay so totsi was an online message board um mostly no images it was just forums people talking back and forth Mm -hmm. And the name I've always really liked because the name, it's not Totsi, it's Ampersand Totsi. Um, because the name of the site was And the Temple of the Screaming Electron. Great name for a site. Um, <laughs> I think the other one was Zagbol or something like that. There's another site that was like very similar to it at the time. Um, but uh, it was just, it was on the message board. So you go on there, you actually like, you know, talk to random folks on the internet and about kind of whatever and i started going on that site probably at the age of 15 um which one of the things that kind of lured me into it was it was like they had you know like uh a bunch of text file stuff on there so it's you know just yeah. like text documents like hey there's a big cache of like i mean a lot of stupid shit that was just like yeah it's all like nonsense misinformation Right. people's personal versions of the anarchist cookbook uh, just <laughs> you know, like stuff like that, that like for a 15 year old on the internet it's like oh my god they're gonna tell me how to make c4 and it's like no they're telling you to mix ammonia and bleach like that th this is literally just like people fucking with each other that's it it's it's yeah. early internet culture um but yeah, a lot of folks do talk about like, you know how to make like little like hacks on cable boxes and shit like that and so it's like you know stuff that was real information and misinformation um some All political conversation yeah and uh what there was a, a site on there a page on there called half baked and half baked was a uh image part of the forum and so you could post images on there and so it was the usual internet gamut of uh I, honestly were kind of like proto memes at that point like not really memes but like it was getting there and um of course pornography and you know some random cool images of the people the people's personal artwork or just like you know random things people found online they liked yeah um not super like edgy horrible stuff but just like it's 
kind of it was it was not like that bad of a site. It was just like like everywhere was on the internet and back kind of like those wild west days of the internet um, before social media really took off. And from that, I ended up kind of finding uh, this website YTMND, which is You're the Man Now, Dog. And it was a website that had these short little videos that had an audio track that would play over them, and it would just loop over and over again. And that's where I really started first seeing some, like, really, uh, what now I'd call, like, edgelord, like, uh, look how funny this is that I'm being bigoted. Um, yeah. Like, I think the, the one I always think of is, um, well, I can't say it on a podcast, but it's like, N-Word Stole My Bike. And it's a clip from a 90s, uh, not 90s, I guess, like, I think early 90s video game, uh, Mike Tyson's Boxing. Well, I keep talking about boxing today. Boxing Adventure, <laughs> or something like that. Um, but the, the part of the game is, like, your character's running behind this, your trainer who's riding the bike in front of you. And so it's this black guy sitting on a bike riding in front of you, and you running behind him, and this, like, sound clip playing over and over again, like, N-Word stole my bike. And it's like, and for like a 15-year-old find the internet, it's like, oh my god, they said the bad word. Oh my god, that's so funny. And it is really easy to keep having little clips like that re-reference again and again and again how it's like, it's okay to say this stuff. It's funny. Yeah. And and from there, I found something awful, which then, uh, which is a, a hilarious humor site that actually does a really good job at keeping any kind of bigoted shit off there. Highly like something awful. Um, yeah. And, uh, but that news me then to uh, Second Life. Second Life was an online VR experience. Um, <laughs> I it think is, it still exists. Oh, so. it still exists. No, it's it's a yeah. thing. Um, uh, holy crap. I mean, like, when I first found Second Life, that was like, oh my god, they've made cyberspace a reality. It was, you can yeah. walk around in this virtual world, and there are people actually selling real things. People are selling real estate in the game. They're selling little animated, like, uh, movements they created for their characters. Mm -hmm. You, had the you ability can go to... and live capitalism virtually. You can. You could also make yourself a little <laughs> steampunk automaton and go to sex clubs. You know, you, you, it, it, was yeah. this, it, was, it was the <laughs> internet made into a little virtual reality escape. And... I found that guy. That was that was an eighteen where I found Second Life and was just like, holy shit! Like just amazing. Uh, losing hours yeah. and hours and hours in that game, trying to like piece together polygons to make like Warhammer armor and shit like that. Um, <laughs> and that then uh, led me to some random guy in a big sandbox level. So I'm like, in this like a place you can just build anything, do any kind of script you want. They were literally, I found one time, like, people having, like, a furry orgy in an actual dirigible airship, like, a thousand feet up in the sky. It was a... I never thought I would ever hear that phrase, but... But but it was there. Are. It's the internet. It was just the internet. <laughs> it was the internet made nearly tangible. And so, of course. Yeah. But um, yeah. the, uh, the, the sandbox areas had a lot of folks actually running around talking, like, hey, how did you make that thing? Where's the script for that? Can I, like, get that right. script from you? Like, and actually making these... Um, uh like one other thing was like these little emoter boxes that you just like put down on the ground and it would spam like a 2d image and would just spawn like thousands of them and because uh, a big part of that game as a lot of internet culture at that time was was griefing folks and so yeah. you'd figure out something you could do that would just annoy people and you'd uh go there i made i made a box that was just this giant cube that had just smiley faces all on the inside of it and you could just put it on top of someone else's character and they couldn't leave the box 
they had to log out and log back in again. That, and I just I, I hate that. I just already. go around and do that. It was amazing. And so I did that with one guy, <laughs> and he dropped in a motor box in there that just started spamming two-dimensional Luigi pictures. And I was like, that's hilarious. Where did you get that? And so we started talking in there. And uh, he was like, hey, well, you, you, you ever check out 4chan? I'm like, no, never have. Like, you know, I've never like, looked at that specific, uh, specific forum. Right. And uh, he was like, yeah, check it out. And so I went on uh, 4chan. I was like, yeah, for my first time. It was around 2018. That's what I said, sorry, when I was 18. Um, and, uh, like, fell in love with it. It was like, holy shit, this is hilarious. And it took me few years to all of a sudden realize like this place is just concentrated racism <laughs> yeah. um and and not just racism but bigotry of all types uh i think my favorite metaphor for it is the sea of piss um <laughs> i've heard that a, at least i used to hear that a fair bit i don't know but as i think people say like you know, trolling 4chan is just peeing in the sea of piss like it's yeah it, there's no point. There's no point to it. It just yeah. no one, no one's gonna get pissed off at you. They're just gonna join in. And everyone's gonna I'm be pissing. With you. Everyone's gonna keep pissing. <laughs> um, and and I used to like you know see a bunch of, like the raids people would do from 4chan. Um, I actually really liked that they did the Scientology protests back in 2008, mm-hmm. where they just like actually had some folks on there who were like you know actual uh, um like anti uh censorship crusaders who were like yeah right. scientology is trying to censor shit on uh, censorship online censor shit online bleh. and we're gonna you know get out in the street and protest and there's some great photos from that time of groups of like four people standing on street corners wearing like anonymous masks and looking hilariously nerdy um <laughs> And I'll, I'll, I'll very openly say I was one of those folks. Um, but, uh, but so that level of like, well, hey, it's just this anti-censorship culture plays right. really heavily into, well, I can say bigoted stuff and how dare you try and stop me. Yeah. Because I, it... I, I think that reflects the general experience of a lot of the online Nazis um, and, and the people that they can effectively groom um though it's interesting listening to your story because it sounds kind of a little closer to the stereotypical story we hear about the the fascism pipeline yeah um and mine was not like that at all because uh it was much shorter uh and much more specific i had this I didn't really have friends in school at all. Uh, I did have some friends that I that I hung out with, but we didn't talk politics a lot, and I tended to only talk liberal politics. Yeah. Uh, you know, I was a I was a supporter of Dennis Kucinich in the two thousand eight primary. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, and then I I skipped school on election day in two thousand eight to go and get out the vote for Barack Obama. Uh, yeah. And and even at the time, I didn't like doing it because I supported the more progressive candidate. So I was just one of those insufferable high school liberals. <laughs> uh, well, I do want to point out one thing, though, because while yeah. I was at in 2008, you know, uh, discovering 4chan and getting invested into this, you know, uh, offensive online culture, I was like, holy shit, we get to 
elect the first black president. Like I was really excited yeah. about that. It was a very um, positive thing. I was I was very liberal minded. I wasn't right. right leaning. It was just I kind of like the aesthetic. <laughs> yeah, I for me, I I went on to a lot of the actual real fascist forums uh, for like three months. Yeah, and to me, I still I still really held the values of. Uh, not not anti-racism but not being racist and, and there is a difference um because liberals believe in not being racist but they don't really necessarily believe in anti-racism um yeah. and i eventually figured out oh this isn't people who want to reorganize for a better society these are people who want to fucking murder and genocide um, See, I think that thing for me on a big level is kind of realizing realizing that I had not realized that. Yeah, that can be a lot more surprising. Um, I was 16, so that that's my excuse. Uh, and after I figured that out, I, I took a big swing um, left, and I decided that I was a communist. I didn't really understand what that meant. <laughs> <laughs> um, i mean i i had read the manifesto you filthy statist <laughs> well really what it was is i switched aesthetics that's yeah. when i stopped being as interested in german history though i never lost interest in german history and i did eventually go on and study uh german language and and history um but uh it's when I started to become interested in Russia and the Soviet Union and Soviet history and uh, got and started to appreciate the Soviet aesthetic, which I admit that to this day, I still like a lot of the Soviet aesthetic, even though um, I know. I'm, I think it's horribly bland. <laughs> you, you don't appreciate the, uh, the tasteful browns? No. And blocks? No. No. Well, if you don't appreciate it now, then I don't think you ever will, and that's okay because we have a gulag for you. Yeah, I'll I'll learn in the gulag. That's fine. You'll learn in the yeah. There will be all kinds of brown and white and gray there for you to understand the difference and begin to appreciate it. The subtleties, yeah. The subtleties of life. That is what the Soviet Union was about. I don't think that's there, um, but. Um, <laughs> No, but so so I switched to that and eventually that sort of calmed down and I spent my senior year in high school um, away. Um, you know, I, I lived in I lived far away from my parents and and family uh, because I, I had been an exchange student. I went to another country and uh, yeah. so I was very far away, separated from anybody I knew. And I read a book that my uh, that my dad had given me uh, before I left Um it had been months and months, and I hadn't read the book, and I finally picked it up. And it was uh, The Dispossessed by Ursula K. Le Guin. And it, it remains to this day my favorite book, uh, and she remains to this day my favorite author, and that's probably not going to change. Uh, and I had always been kind of a, an idealist, uh, a utopian. Uh, yeah. I would say that I'm still a utopian, even though most people may not get that from the way I talk. But... <laughs> <laughs> oh okay aren't you supposed to be the black pill doomer on this thing <laughs> oh we'll get there um 
what uh, but I, I read this book and and for those of you who haven't read it it's uh it's a science fiction book uh the the main character is this theoretical physicist named shevek who lives on an anarchist moon uh called anares uh and the sort of the center plot of the story is that he uh leaves this moon of anares to go to the planet the capitalist planet uh uras um and so each of the chapters they sort of move between the story of his life growing up on this anarchist moon and the problems that that arose and and like the very real problems of this utopian society this profoundly yeah. utopian society where they had to deal with famine they had to deal with shortages of water they had to deal with questions of you know how do you value yourself in a collective society that tells you that your value is not uh as high as that of the community yeah so i I read this book and saw this imperfect utopia uh ursula Le Guin called it an ambiguous utopia and i and i think that's a pretty good way of looking at it and it was after reading that book that i realized oh shit we can actually do this yeah um, you know, the, this anarchist society that I had researched before, you know, it wasn't realistic. And I always I always really valued being realistic and serious and pragmatic. And so reading this book and seeing a depiction of a utopia where not everything was perfect uh, made me realize that, like, well, a- actually, this is a very realistic ideology, anarchism. And, you know, so that was about 10 years ago. Um, yeah. that, I, that I read the book. And uh, since then, I've called myself an anarchist. Uh, but really, I don't think I came fully into the ideology. I didn't. I still had a lot of liberal views. And I think for me, my personal journey is a lot less about what I, how I touched on far-right politics, you, you know, even though I did, and a lot more about um, shedding the liberalism that was pretty deeply ingrained in how I grew up. My family is German, and um, in pretty near uh, future, going to be heading to Germany. I mean, <laughs> pandemic allowing. Um, going <laughs> to head to Germany and, you know, go see, like, where my folks are from and stuff like that. And um, yeah, and so I, I, I've learned German on and off throughout the years of my life. It's never really stuck because I'm really bad at learning languages. And... Um, but you know, so now we have like a bunch of stuff in our house just labeled with you know like uh, you know Badenzimmer, Schlafzimmer, like you know bedroom. Stepping bathroom. away for a minute. And what we uh, uh, have been like, talking about is actually getting this, like I found a book online that's like talking about um, it's like a, a story of like you know Dracula, but it's like random words are just German vocab thrown in there and it's all highlighted so you can like oh you can kind of guess what the words are and figure it out and it supposedly throughout the book builds up more and more until you have like the whole thing in german you can read it um we'll see if it works i'm gonna get it um but uh the way that ties into uh this conversation is that i i took german in college and uh this was one of the big um points where all of a sudden i was like i'm i'm tired of this like online like, I already had that realization of like the, oh my God, are we the baddies? But having that moment of like, oh God, you're the baddies. And it was one of my classmates in the German class who 
invited me and a friend of mine over to just hang out. And we hung out and we smoked pot and we're just chilling and talking. And uh, he had this big uh, Odin Raven like flag um, on like one of the walls of his house. And very like Nordic, very like proud Nord kind of guy. And um, we're sitting there stoned and he starts going off on how the Jews are the problem and how we need to get rid of them. And how, oh, like, yeah. there's been good ways to handle this in the past. And it was just like, oh, oh what the boy. Fuck? You know, and it was it was one of those things where it's kind of like, again, that same time in my life where I was kind of doing the whole, like, haha, I'm saying edgy things on the internet. It's funny. And yeah. having that realization of, like, oh, shit, maybe I shouldn't be saying these edgy things because it's actually not that funny because some people take this seriously. And right. then a couple years later having this, like, oh, some people take this seriously. And it was the first person I met who I was like, oh, you're a fascist. And realizing yeah. what that really meant. Not yeah. just like, oh, you like saying offensive shit, and yeah, you're racist. But like, you want to exterminate an entire race of people because you don't like their existence. And he, he was actually someone who had kind of an eco-fascist view on things. Of like, there's not yeah. enough resources, therefore we just have to kill half the population, well, and we can kill the worst half of the population. So like, that is books. a funny. That's a funny thing because um, that is actually a major motivation for the original Nazis. Oh yeah, Lebensraum. Uh, you want to have the space to live in. Yep. Yeah, but but that was based on a very specific um, Malthusian idea about population and overpopulation. Like the whole idea was that. Uh, given the amount of land that Germany had, uh, that over time they would not be able to produce enough food to continue expanding their population and that the populations of other countries, uh, Poland, Russia in particular, uh, because of all the land they have, would be able to expand and eventually take over Germany. That, that was one of the theories that, uh, that was a major theory used to promote the idea of Lebensraum. Uh, by the Nazis. And that idea has um, come back, though. I think that's like, uh, uh, especially oh, yeah. in like, yeah. you know, when, um, when, when folks across the political spectrum do see the climate catastrophe on the horizon and are scared by it. And some of the reactions are, you know, the collectivist reaction of we need to all band together and figure out how to solve this. And some of yeah. it is, well, we can keep going on the same path wrong. We just need to get rid of some people. Yeah. And uh, I think that idea also helps foster a lot of this like fascist movements. Um, and that's the point is that's that's a little far from yeah. what I want to talk about right now. But the the, the guy right. like that was that that moment I had of realizing that there were real fascists, not just like yes. as some abstract idea or some random people on the internet, but like people I had met and interacted with in my daily life who were like, "You are a fascist," and it was one of the most horrifying realizations. Like I mean, honestly, like it about like you know. 10 minutes after this conversation, my buddy and I found some good excuses to leave. Like, it was one of those, like, right. we need to get the fuck out of here. Um, the story does have a happy ending. Um, I've known the guy for years. Like, I keep running into him randomly because I live in a small <laughs> town. And he's actually, like, gotten out of the movement. It sounds like, uh, I think he had a girlfriend who went, like, hardcore neo-Nazi. And he was like, oh, holy shit, I don't actually want to be this. And, like, it seems like he actually got out of the movement and ended up being... Um, uh, pretty left-leaning now um it seems like he's doing all right uh but uh 
but the other thing at that same time and this is like where this whole sort of uh flirtation with fascism begins to transition for me into leftist ideology because at the same time that all this stuff is going on where i was dealing with all this online you know video game uh forums culture uh i'd started getting really into uh singularitarianism which is the belief in uh that we're going to be approaching a technological singularity uh ray kurzweil um is the main proponent of this in a lot of ways um just kind of talking about how like you know technology is improving at a rate that we're going to have uh real ai soon and the actual i'd love to discuss that in a future episode i think it's fascinating um it it lines a lot with like this very futurist ideology of you know what are we going to do when we have computers that think um you know are they going to be slaves of ours are we going to be their slaves are they going to get rid of all the oxygen on earth so that you know they don't rust uh (laughs) <laughs> there's a lot of no there's the things that are discussed in these these you know, futurist yeah. uh philosophy everything's um ask elon musk he knows about it uh <laughs> i am not gonna do that yeah you're not a fan of old musky um but uh he can fuck right off but one of the things that um reading all of this uh made me realize at the time and I'm also, you know, I was reading a ton of like Silver Age sci-fi. Also reading uh, Ursula Guin, A Lathe of Heaven, <laughs> which is like uh, you right. brought it up, and I was like, wait a second, yeah, I know that. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, seeing these kind of uh, utopian societies in sci-fi, and a lot of times seeing like uh, especially like like Larry Niven books and uh, Arthur C. Clarke kind of stuff that yeah, they have a lot of problems that are caused by capitalist structures no kidding yeah and yeah seeing that and then reading this idea of like well not just like well here's where we could be in the future with the singularity stuff but the idea of like this is going to happen whether or not we like it the tech world Mm -hmm. is going to keep developing they're going to keep trying to make better and better ai and it's really horrifying seeing some of these productions come into being like the time I read it, it was like, well, maybe we'll have driverless cars in the future. And it was this, you know, crazy futurist idea like jetpacks. And now it's yeah. like, well, yeah, we actually do have a serious concern about people losing their jobs in the, like the shipping industry because we're going to have driverless trucks pretty soon. So, yeah, well, and and the ethical questions that uh, that arise because because you know there are about thirty thousand deaths in America every year from uh, car accidents. Um, and a number of those are pedestrians getting hit. And that's been one of the major ethical questions that's come up from, uh, I mean, uh, driverless cars in particular about, uh, is it the responsibility of the car to uh, protect the life of the passenger or the pedestrian? Yeah, and, they, and that those, those are some very sticky AI questions. Well, yeah, because well, what, yeah. what value are you... Uh... Right, because because the passenger on. because the passenger is the customer, yeah. Right? And so you start involving these uh, commercial relationships in ethical discussions, and suddenly your AI uh, is Has starting to, to make decisions hmm. based on capitalist ethics. Yes, and those are the same kind of ethical questions that made me start really questioning. Uh, 
kind of capitalist ideology generally. Uh, again, while, you know, reading all this sci-fi and being inundated in this, you know, online culture and starting to really question like, okay, like what is a better way? Yeah. Um, and I was never much of a uh, political reader. I've always read a lot of fan, uh, like, uh, fantasy and sci-fi, um, yeah. mostly fiction, a lot of horror, a lot of horror. Um, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> but I think the closest I ever got to reading anything that made me really kind of change my outlook on um, political views is Ishmael, which uh, Daniel Quinn a lot of folks who've read that book will tell you the same thing of like, oh, it's yeah, it's a, it's a yeah. life, it's a life-changing book. Like, there, I've heard that a lot. There are the books you read before you read Ishmael. There are the books you read after you read Ishmael. They are different. Um, but the main discussion in the book is just humankind has trapped itself in this um, race to the bottom uh, struggle for resources that we are self-limiting. Um. I, I disagree. He has a very uh, primitivist outlook of like, we need to go back to like a pre-agricultural era, kind of. Mm -hmm. I disagree with that, but it allowed me to kind of take a step back and look at society as a whole. And I think that ties a lot into the idea of this, uh, the eco-fascist, uh, you know, we need, we need Lebensraum kind of thing. Because it's like, well, no, yeah. we don't. The problem is not that we're running out of food. The problem is people are hoarding the food. Yeah, and or controlling its production controlling such its production, that there's a shortage. Yeah. And I think and, and, and not just that controlling it so that there's a shortage, but the systems we have built for ourselves have trapped us. Yeah. And I think a lot of folks I mean, my God, the fact that we can feed a population as large as we have right now is amazing. But we yeah. do that because of profit motive. And because it is yeah. sometimes profitable to let folks starve, we let folks starve. Yeah. And that's where I mean, my we view... May, we, we produce more food than, than we need to feed everybody on the planet. Yeah. So there isn't actually a shortage no. uh, of food. It's we just burn corn crop every year. Yeah, yeah, we fucking do. Ethanol is terrible. People stop putting it in your gas. <laughs> <laughs> but so, so I guess because we are discussing you know kind of the, the long road to our political um, I guess modern viewpoints I guess I, I kind of want to wrap up now because we're about hitting the hour point and we're, we're getting there um, but I want to kind of do a quick just walk through of like where I actually I think my views kind of started out which was pretty ambivalent about everything yeah while being inundated in this uh i mean bigotry heavy kind of like for the lulls online culture and going from that to start reading some of this stuff about like you know phenomenal futurism of how we're gonna have this technology that's going to either save us or doom us all and then simultaneously realizing that a lot of the folks I was talking to online were actually fascists. And yeah. a lot of folks didn't really get that that was a thing. Yeah. And simultaneously seeing that, okay, if we keep on this path we're on, we're all doomed. Mm -hmm. And 
kind of from that. I never read anything that instructed me on how to be a leftist. For me, it was a very, I guess, pragmatic decision of like, well, yeah, we all can support each other. I mean, right. I'd read the Communist Manifesto until I was like 27. Um, it's it's a yeah, boring book. <laughs> it's a boring. It's a boring book. Um, there's some good singers in there, uh, yeah. but I. I mean, it got a great I, I intro it, line, but it's it's good as a as like a historical document, I, I think. Um, I agree, but I, I want to just it, yeah. But it, for me, the transition I made was one of ignorance and not giving a fuck if I offended anybody. To yeah. okay, these are real people, both that are being offended and doing the offending. And if we don't all work together, we're all going to fucking die. Yeah. And that's where I've come to my uh, leftist ideology, as I guess. And I, yeah. I, sh I should say, because I, 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 it's going to get brought up at some point. Um, I, I'm a pretty hardcore Trotskyist. I am an anarcho-syndicalist. I you, fucking you like unions. I like trade unions. Oh. Did you, did you mute me? <laughs> I, excuse um, me? No, I, I was saying, so I, I'm. <laughs> no, you ju you just got garbled. I, I'm an anarchist. By the, uh, my... Okay. Okay, so, uh, so I mean, I'm really aligned with like anarchist syndicalism, Trotskyism. I like the idea of unions. I like the idea of syndicates. I like the idea of guilds. I like that level of political organization where it is folks who are. <sighs> You can freely associate with other folks and actually build your own communities and build from the ground up. And yeah. the idea that you don't have to have a permanent solution at first. I love the Trotsky idea of perpetual revolution. I love the idea of uh, everyone at all times. You don't need an industrialized country to be socialist. You can start right. at any level. I All of that is kind of where I landed once I kind of took these uh, futurist views, pragmatism, and um, recognizing that there are real fascists out there. Yeah. Mine was more of a transition out of liberalism, uh, where I, I held a lot of the same values, but realized that liberal um, methods didn't actually achieve what the state had values and goals were uh and, and i did this by studying philosophy in, in college and sort of grappling with a lot of ethical issues and uh so ethics and and morality were a huge part of uh what i studied and by the end of college i my senior papers that i wrote that are terrible um because all senior papers are terrible uh i eventually started coming up with a theory of morality that uh later on I realized is very, very similar to what uh, Peter Kropotkin uh, wrote. And Peter Kropotkin was the uh, anarchist sort of anthropologist philosopher in the 1800s who provided, uh, I would argue, the scientific basis um, or a kind of a scientific basis for why yeah. anarchism uh, works um, because it sort of complies with that helping each other, that mutual aid part of human nature. Um, which is not to say that it doesn't conflict with other things about well, of humans. Um, humans are greedy, so that, nasty bitches, but <laughs> uh -huh. we are. Yeah, short, we are. Life is short and brutish. Uh, 
but uh, so that I had that sort of philosophical basis, and then um, I went to law school. Uh, and law school is kind of like <laughs> okay. the ultimate liberal experience. Yeah. Um, be, because the law itself is kind of the thing that upholds liberal ideology, right? It, it's it's liberal ideology put into the practice, put into practice by the state. Um, and uh, I had one class in law school that fundamentally altered the way I saw everything about the state and how it functioned and how it relates to regular people, and that's. Uh, studying what's called administrative law. It's the law of bureaucracies, agencies, commissions, bureaus, boards, all that shit. Uh, the, the, and, the wheels and gears that make everything... Right. Almost all of the government is made up run. by this. Um, and they make up most of the laws that exist. Uh, almost all of the laws that exist. And uh, I realized, oh shit, we can't reform our way out of this. <laughs> Uh, okay, go um, go go off because I I, I want yeah. to uh, yeah, I know this well, spiel, but I love hearing it. So please go off. It's, <laughs> so uh, it can, it can't be changed. It's just so enormous and so widespread, and uh, bureaucrats themselves are pushed by the structure, you know, by the bureaucratic structure to continue to grab power, to take more power when they when they have the opportunity to do it. I have personal experience dealing with this, uh, having practiced administrative law and fought uh, state agencies um, who were absolutely making power grabs that they had no right to be making. Uh, you know, and, and I would say that that is the general practice of almost all uh, bureaucratic agencies in the U.S., um, arguably in other countries, too. Uh, so that was one major factor. So, you know, I had the label of anarchist. Uh, since I was 17, but it took some years of studying philosophy and studying law and practicing law to realize, uh, you know, to, fo to fully see in person just how unfixable the current system is. Well, could you explain briefly, just like uh, maybe broad stroke it, but um, huh. uh, what, like, how, how the bureaucracy functions? Oh. <laughs> and that's what I'm saying. Like it, it um, has to be broad yeah. strokes. But so, I think a lot of folks see bureaucrats and they think, you know, right. guys in brown suits going um, to an office building. They fill out paperwork. They go home, and something happens. They go through 50 people, and somewhere down the line, something happens that doesn't affect anybody. Because I think a lot of folks have this idea um, that bureaucracy is sterile and removed from everything. So bureaucracy is sterile and it is removed from reality, but it has a huge effect on that reality. So, to to fund, we're going to go over time. So I'm just going to deal with that. Um, All right. So just ground basics um, is you need to have a kind of a basic understanding of how the American legal system works, which is that there are different kinds of law, um, and you need to understand this because administrative law relates to these other kinds of law in a way that gives it more power than you would think. Uh, so you have the law that Congresses make you know, legislatures, and that's called, those are called statutes. So Congress doesn't regulate things. Congress makes statutes and directs agencies and commissions and bureaus to regulate. Um, so Congress, legislatures, they make statutes. And then you have your courts, and the courts make two different kinds of law. So courts mm -hmm. uh, make case law, and case law is the interpretation 
uh, of law that already exists. Um, statutes, regulations, executive orders, uh, whatever. You're, they're interpreting law that already exists, and that becomes the case law. And then courts have also, over the course of a thousand years since coming from England, created common law. Uh, and common law is law that is completely made up by the courts. Um, so that's like most contract law, for example, uh, is yeah. common law. Then you have the the executive branch, right? So these are these are the three branches, and then the executive branch has two major ways that it functions. The ones that get a lot of press are executive orders, which are just directives by the executive, the governor or the president, to the agencies on how to do their regulation and enforcement. Okay. So then you have all the agencies, the commissions, and and all them, and what they create are regulations. Um, so when you hear there's a regulation for that, it's the bureaucrats who made it. And they there are a number of different processes for it, but usually the, the big one that you hear about is the rulemaking process, where there's like a public comment period where the bureaucrats are supposed to listen to people's input. And that's where and, they're, they're doing something, yeah. and they're like, we want the public to show up at the hearing and uh, yeah, so the, say the, what the, they want to say. Yeah, and we'll the most have... notable example is the FCC uh net neutrality regulation. That's one thing where tons of people heard about it. Uh, so you have this fundamental, you know, this foundational aspect of our communication structure, the internet being the rule is not being made by Congress. The rule is being made by a few bureaucrats on the FCC. Uh, and the way they do it is they have this comment period, you know, from which they, they proceed to ignore what the public say, and then they make a rule, a regulation. Yeah. Um, so there's that, but then agencies have this other way of getting around even that limited aspect of public participation and they have different names for them in different agencies, but they're essentially called policy letters and that policy is letters are written by, uh, bureaucrats, um, sometimes lawyer bureaucrats who work in, in that agency, but sometimes not, which are the agency's interpretations of their own rules. Um, and really, really what they these tend to be is a way for agencies to make up new rules without having to go through the public comment process. And the thing that really sets this down as the way everything works are a couple of decisions. Uh, you know, one major one by the U.S. Supreme Court that says that agencies' interpretations of their own rules are the interpretations that the courts will adopt almost always. So that means essentially that agencies get to make up their own rules. Uh, and make up their own interpretations for their own rules with almost no oversight from courts uh, and very little oversight from, you know, absolutely no oversight from Congress, basically, or okay. the legislature, and very little oversight from the executive that's actually in charge on top. Okay. So I do want to say now, I, I believe we actually got way off topic, and I think, honestly, this will probably be edited out. Um, yeah. Because this is, uh, I want to have an episode about bureaucracy. And I think oh, this so do is, I. I I've think, got it. Yeah. And um, I. I was saying, like, give broad strokes, and, like, is there a way you can explain in, like, a minute why the bureaucracy has pushed you to the left? Because that's, what I think, what um, I wanted to, like, hear for this. So just, like, a quick little so, thing of, like, because you said it, administrative law. That's where we were going, was you talking about, like, going to yeah. law school, the right. liberal experience you had there, and then how did that push you more so, to the left? So I, I went to law school and got involved in environmentalist activism. Uh, there we are. So I had that going on at the same time. <laughs> Uh, and got and from there got involved in 
social justice and immigration activism. So I had all that going on outside of law school, and then I had learning about how fucked up the system was from the inside uh, in law school. Uh, and so it was that combination of seeing the very real effects that the state had on people's regular lives uh, and seeing it more and more as I was you know, becoming a more independent adult and having to have more contact with the government myself. Uh, so all these things sort of played into it. Um, and eventually I found, I got some time uh, in the last five years to start reading a lot, uh, reading a lot of, and, and listening to a lot of podcasts and learning about a lot more leftist ideology, Yeah, uh, which essentially just gave me the, the ideological framework I needed to, um, you know, have my ideas in order and, and be able to actually honestly say that what I think, what my ideology is, and what I hope my actions are line up with that label I put on myself 10 years ago. Which well, it's is synthesis. Anarchist. At that level, it's like you, yeah. you're able to synthesize the kind of collective the, th the thoughts, the ideologies have been building in the background, being like, oh, these are labels yeah. I can put on it to actually organize it and right. make it into something that is uh, demonstrable. Yeah. So I use different labels at different times, uh, you know, but but really the, the one label I use consistently is anarchist. Uh, Anarcho-communist would also be accurate, I think. Uh, but fundamentally, uh, my real political value is that I'll take what I can get. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so uh, if social democracy is the limit of what we can achieve in my lifetime, then I'll take it. Um, but I don't think it's actually the limit of what we can achieve in my lifetime. So well, that's a hopeful outlook for a doomer. Yeah, well, the, the world is going to end, but a good society doesn't have to.